Hey everyone, welcome to the Communication Coach Podcast, where I'm going to help you to create successful change through powerful and honest conversations. I am your host, Nikki Perfect. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 56 of the Communication Coach Podcast. I hope you're all well, whatever you're doing. And today's title is How to Speak to Someone in Crisis. And I have been asked to cover this subject by a family who have a member of their family in crisis and they wanted to find out the best way to be able to listen to what their child is saying to them and to understand more and to be there for them whilst obviously going through their own emotional trauma and challenges as well. So I've made a list because I can go really deep into this. It could take a long time. So I'm going to cover what I believe are the most important aspects of it. If I run over and I might split it into two. And if you have any more questions arising from this podcast, please do get in contact with me and I can explain more and break it down more into sections. So when you are a parent, I believe, or in a relationship, a very emotionally involved relationship, generally with family members probably and partners, sometimes at work even, if you work in a specific area where you're a very close-knit team. But generally today I'm going to be talking about very emotional conversations which are family driven conversations or partner driven conversations so and it will become clearer as I go through why I'm doing that but when we talk about conversations at work or with with people we're not emotionally involved it's easier for us to come at the conversation from a logical perspective than it is when we are incredibly emotionally involved now as a step parent myself to make who's age 12 I have found that I definitely have learnt from my uh, six years with Meg. She came into my life when she was six and I was in my early 40s and dramatically changed it around. And I've used a lot of the skills that I've learned through negotiation in my relationship uh, with my partner and also with Meg, also with all of my work colleagues. And I, I know from experience it's the emotional conversations that are difficult, which is why when you are acting as a negotiator in a non-emotional role it's a lot easier and sometimes it's easier also for the other person to talk to you now if you think about when you go on holiday and you meet people you often share uh, bits of your life that perhaps you haven't shared with uh, some of your closest friends and I believe the reason for that is because when there isn't the emotion involved we feel that we're not going to be as judged and they don't offer an opinion so let's have a little look more about emotional conversations. Now, if you look at transactional analysis around conversations, they'll talk about the free ego states and they'll talk about parent, adult and child. You can Google all of this. I don't have time on this podcast to go much deeper into it, but the uh, it's been analysed by a guy called Eric Byrne and there's lots of books around that transactional analysis. But it pretty much means that when you're in the parent state, you are coming at conversations from the past whereby 
you're looking at how you were parented and you also are very emotionally involved and often as the parent side we look to problem solve so I'm just going to ask you to hang on to that thought there around problem solving because some of you will probably already be thinking well that's the role of me as a parent my role in life is to help my child in in whatever way I can the best way that I possibly can and I'm there to solve their problems so I just hang on to that thought and before you feel all of that resistance <laughs> kicking in I'm going to go on to explain that a little bit more when you're in the adult conversation you're generally coming at a place from here and now and you're looking at the conversation that you're having in a logical sort of format so we're having an adult conversation now you can have an adult conversation with a teenager with a child because it's logically based they will look at life from a logical perspective of what's going on in their mind and you will look at life from the logical perspective of how it's going in your mind and as long as they don't start to clash and you don't have a clash of values then that conversation will remain logical and you'll be able to have a conversation where you can both see each other's point of view so for example money is a emotive subject now if uh, and i know it causes emotional conversations in my life as much as it does in anybody's life so an example of an adult conversation with an, another person in adult mode would be you've got a budget one of you's overspent the other one just says oh hey can we just talk about the budget i noticed that you've overspent this week and the other person would say oh yeah i just wanted to talk about that with you as well because I've noticed I'm not sure what happened there let's have a look at it together and see how we can work it out that would be an adult conversation now the parent would be far more critical around that and they would say hey what's going on with the budget you're well overspent this month and you can all you can feel the difference straight away now the reaction they could get a parent and another adult reaction from the other person depending on how self-aware the other person is around their response they could get a Oh, yeah, I'm glad you've pointed that out because I wanted to talk to you about it. This is what's happened. Uh, and then that might bring the other person down from parent to adult. So they're both on the logical format. Uh, or you might get what generally happens in life, I find, is an emotional response, which is a childlike response of, hey, you questioning how I'm spending my own money? It's none of your business. So you can see the three different responses there quite clearly. Now, what I'm going to suggest is... Uh, for me, it's easier to just look at the logical and the emotional brain and to recognize that when we go into an emotional um, rationale, we're going into that childlike behavior of what we be believe to be true and the logical brain just goes out the window in that ego state. And it happens a lot and it happens on a day-to-day -day basis just through little things like if you're running late or if you've hung the washing out and it starts to rain or... You know, it could be it could be anything. Somebody hasn't loaded the dishwasher or you're shouting at your kids because they haven't taken the dog out and they promised they'd look after all the animals. You know, all those things that happen on an everyday par. Now, the reason I have, have given you those everyday examples are because when you're dealing with somebody who's deeply in crisis, they're very, or they're generally very emotional. They are possibly, probably also logical but at the time they're in that moment of crisis they we can be incredibly emotional and going through lots of different thoughts and feelings 
So our role as a parent is to protect and love. I totally get that, and I'm not going to say that that's wrong. But what generally happens is we come at it from an emotional point of view. And then when you have the two emotions running together, it's harder for the other person to get their point of view across without feeling that they are judged. Now, I have never been suicidal. I've never wanted to take my own life. I have had periods in my life where I didn't want to get out of bed. um, And I just wanted to shut the world away, which are very different. And I get that. I have had the privilege of working closely with people who have wanted to take their own life in that moment. Um, In that moment that I've been talking to them or I've been privileged enough to share other people's stories. Um, I work very closely with a group called Hear Us who are all service users, many of whom have tried to um, take their own life or reach that stage where they just didn't know what to do. I have also lost a couple of people in my life through suicide. And as a police officer, sadly, I used to deal with the quite a lot of the time with the aftermath of the families going through all of the of the emotions so that's my experience that's where the point that I'm coming from so if you're listening to this and you think well you've never been there so you don't get it you're right I don't get it what it's like for you so I'm going to give you my experience what has worked for me when I've had conversations with people who have been in that state and I'm going to give you some psychology around what happens to us being the person who's trying to have the conversation with the person that's in crisis. So going back to especially being a parent or being in a close relationship with somebody, is sometimes we get frustrated with them as well. And sometimes we will say things like, pull yourself together. Or you can't possibly be feeling like that. And we will question the emotions of the person in front of us. Now, I've I've heard stories, they're all third-party stories, of people going to doctors and specialists and being told that. You know, I, I prescribe you get out and get some sunshine. Great, thanks for that. I prescribe that you do some exercise. Great, thanks for that. We all know that these things work, but when you're in a particular place and you can't see the wood through the trees, so you can't see the future, it's very difficult to to be able to build a rapport or a relationship with somebody when they're just telling you that. Now, as a parent, we like to problem solve. We like to look after our kids. We like to give them the benefit of our opinion uh, and our experience, of course, and what's worked for us in our lives and what hasn't worked for us in our lives. And we, we guide quite rightly and protect quite rightly. And sometimes we don't listen. And we don't listen to what's going on. And that's not a criticism of anybody in any way, shape or form. It's just the way we are because we're so wrapped up in what's happening for us. So let me just give you some examples so I can clarify that so you understand where I'm coming from. So having spoken to uh, people in crisis before, and I remember very early doors as a new negotiator, that I would talk to people and they would be at the end of their tether, the end of where they wanted to go forward in fact I'm going to use a specific example so very early days in my negotiation um, training I went to a park area where there was a 16 year old girl in a tree with a noose around her neck uh, who wanted to jump out the tree and end her life and I was the first negotiator on scene and I was the one that started talking to her and I was rubbish 
I was rubbish because I was so focused on getting her down, problem solving, working out what I could do for her, being more concerned about how I was coming across, what was going on. And I wasn't in the moment with her and I wasn't listening to what she was telling me. Now, thankfully, I was working with a far more experienced guy who took over from me, not out of like, Nick, you're rubbish, you need to stop, not at all, but just out of a, let's try something different because this isn't working. And he took over and I had the privilege of being able to listen to what he said and he was able to relate to her. He was able to relate stories of his own child who was of a similar age. He asked her opinion about what he should do about something specific going on in their relationship and he listened to the emotions that she was displaying and was able to lock into those emotions. Now, early in in that conversation, (laughs) she said, and I've had other people say this to me, is nobody cares about me. Now, from my values and beliefs, I want to think that everybody in the world has somebody that cares about them. Of course I do, but that's about me. That's about what I believe to be true. That's not about what they're going through right here, right now. And often you'll hear people say in response to, nobody cares about me, I care about you. Or, oh, there must be somebody that cares about you. And by just saying those simple lines, and I know what we're trying to do is to be and display empathy towards the other person and get them to understand that there are people in the world that care about them. But that person right there, right in that moment, when you're having that conversation, honestly believes that nobody cares about them. And by then trying to persuade them that, yeah, yeah, of course there must be somebody in the world that cares about you, you are disassociating yourself from the feeling that they are having. So you can't build rapport with somebody. And if you can't build rapport with somebody, you can't get trust. And if you can't get trust, you can never help somebody to change their behavior. And that sounds weird, doesn't it? Because that's a natural thing to say. But flip it over and and think of a time when you have just wanted to be listened to, when you have felt a specific way and yet somebody has completely railroaded your feelings and just told you how you should feel and what what was true. And you're like, hang on a sec, that's not how I feel, and this is what I believe. And we do it with with kids as well. When they come home from school, for example, and they say, oh, so-and-so said I was ugly, our immediate response is to say something along the lines of, no, darling, you're beautiful. But that's, again, because we want to give the reassurance and the empathy and to make it okay, (laughs) and to fix the problem, when actually that's genuinely what they feel. And they genuinely, in that moment, right there, right then, feel that they are ugly and that they're different. So how can we approach that in a different way? We can approach that in a different way by looking at the emotion that they are displaying to us. So when somebody is on a roof edge and they're saying nobody likes me or nobody gets me or nobody cares about me, rather than flipping that back with our opinion of, yeah, I care about you, which I can assure you immediately gets back, no, you don't. You don't even know me. Or, uh, yeah, okay, thank you for that. 
or going for a list of names of all those people you believe should care about them and them coming back at you with the, no, they don't care about me because, they don't care about me because. We're going to look at the emotion that they're displaying. And it can be a variety of emotions. But a simple line could be, you sound really lonely. And by saying that, we're recognising how that person is feeling. Now, what that does in psychology terms is that person then goes, oh, okay, you, you kind of get how I'm feeling. Now, if you get it wrong, it's no big deal because they'll tell you. They, so they could just say, no, I don't feel lonely. I feel pissed off because, or I feel angry because, or I feel frustrated because, or if they don't give you a because, if they just say, I feel frustrated then you can now open up that conversation of reflecting either back the emotion going, oh, frustrated, or asking what exactly is it that's making you frustrated. And that allows the person to stay on how they're feeling and what's causing those feelings. So the tendency that we have as people is because we like to look after people, especially if we're emotionally involved, especially if they're a member of our family and especially generally if they're a parent now I'm not saying this happens to all parents please don't you know I'm not tiring everybody with the same brush but in general I have found that when you're a parent you have that emotional bond with your child and you want to fix the problem and you want to problem solve for them or if you have any sort of close relationship because you want to look out for that person and you don't recognize the emotion they're displaying and it's the same if the child comes home and says I am uh, somebody called me ugly now we're reflecting how we want them to feel which is beautiful and we're wrapping them up and we're reassuring them but we're not looking at the emotion we're not looking at how they're feeling so perhaps we could use a phrase like and that makes you sad just a question or you sound frustrated about that now I I, in my experience as a, a, a parent picking up a younger Meg you know, I used to ask loads of questions about how was your day, what did you do, and you get those stock answers back from kids, don't you? You get the stock answer back of uh, did nothing, to which you reply, what you did nothing for eight hours, and you find yourself saying all those things that you vowed you would never say uh, as a parent. You did nothing for eight hours in school, or I need, I need to stop paying for your school fees, or I need to send you to a different school. And the reason that we do that, I believe, is because we want to show a that we care and that we're interested in the other person. But what we're not recognising is that they actually don't want to talk about school because it's not that important to them and there are aspects of school that they probably found boring. It's the same at work. I often um, found I didn't want to talk about work when I got home because I wanted my home life to be separate from my private life. And so when I got home and I was asked the question, oh, how was your day? You skirt over it and just go, oh, yeah, it was okay. Because I'm not, I, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about something else. I want to know about your day. I want to know about what happened at home. I want to know about, you know, I live with chickens, dogs uh, and goats. And I want to know about that. And that was the same with Meg. So if I picked her up from school and she said, you know, I'd ask those questions and I would get that kickback if I don't really want to talk about that, then I would, I would say something about the dogs. And then that would engage her. And then we'd have a conversation. And then I might drop in, so what happened? And then I'd be more likely to get a response telling me what happened. So... That's point number one. Gosh, that's point number one. I've gone on it for about 20 minutes. So point number one is it's not about you. It's about 
the other person. So as much as you want to wrap somebody up and help them and problem solve, it's about listening for the emotion, which is actually another another point. So I'll be able to wrap that into two. And the other the other point to remember is something called Batari's box, which is your attitude affects your behaviour, affects my attitude, affects my behaviour. And you see this all the time with people. All the time. I was sitting on a uh, train listening to a conversation and it was a young lady and a gentleman going down on the train to London. I'm going to assume there was some sort of relationship involved. In fact, I'm just going to say it was dad and daughter and she was going for an audition and she was very excited and she had it all in her head what she was going to do and how she was going to be and he was there nodding and smiling and they were engaged in great conversation. And then he put his opinion onto her and he said, when you get there, you must do that. And using the word you must or you should or if I were you, you're coming at a conversation from your point of view. And immediately he did that. He lost her. She stuck her headphones in. She smiled at him. He carried on talking, but she was gone. She was back on what was important to her. So think about times in your life when you have had emotional conversations or you have felt a particular way and the reaction that you've given to somebody. I know that I do this. I know that if I get up and I'm cranky in the morning because I haven't had a good night's sleep, I'm more likely to have that childlike behaviour, that emotional conversation. Or if I'm being challenged about something that I believe to be true, I'm going to kick back with a childlike conversation full of emotion and then what I get back from the other person is generally what I'm giving out and you see this with with kids a lot with with behavior when they are a reflection of your behavior so if you are loving and hugging and you know happy they are generally loving and hugging and happy if you're grumpy and grouchy and cross they are generally <laughs> grumpy grouchy and cross it's Batari's box working in its purest form and it doesn't stop when you become an adult and the um, important thing for me is you're not going to change all of this overnight because we are ingrained in human behavior it took me ages and ages and ages to get this and I'm still getting it and I'm still researching and I'm still looking at ego 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 and how that affects my behavior and where that that trips in and it's a constant constant self-awareness process but if you can work out in your life Batari's box and suddenly go do you know what, I'm getting that reaction because of the way that I'm talking or the way I'm behaving. It just makes life a little bit easier. And one of my massive purposes in life is to make life just a little bit easier through people, for people, through sharing my experiences and what I've learned over the last 12 years. So that's point number one. Point number two is trust. Now, as a parent, I believe we think we have kids' trust all the time. Uh, and we probably do to a certain extent. But as kids change and develop and have new experiences, they form their own patterns of behaviour. They form their own opinions. Uh, they start to get their own set of values and beliefs. And they don't tell us everything. Um, and I find this really hard, and perhaps you can relate to this, but I find that really hard with Meg. I, that she might be carrying a burden or worrying about something that I don't know about. And... I find that when when I push questions, if I think there's something there, she'll resist. She'll resist to my questions about what's going on. Is everything okay? 
But when I'm in the moment and I'm present and I just listen to her and I reflect back what she's telling me, and we can reflect back in several ways. One is labelling the emotions. One is just summarising what she's saying to me without voicing my opinion, but just summarising really back the words that she's saying. Or we can just echo some of the words back that she has said to us. So, for example, um, she's she has some really strong opinions about um, animal treatment and the way that the world is going and global warming and what human beings are doing. She has really strong opinions about that. And one of her school friends didn't have a strong opinion about that. In fact, said we should we should kill. I think the conversation was along the lines of we should kill sharks because they kill humans. Uh, no, this infuriated Meg because she's very emotional about that. And she was telling me about this. And there were a couple of things that she said, and I thought, oh, gosh, I wonder if, you know, she's had a fallout with her friend and how that's gone. So I had to really check myself around that and just be there in the moment while she offloaded that conversation and then just reflect back, well, gosh, I, I, I think I used the words, you sound really frustrated with your friend about that. And she was like, yeah, I am, because. And then she would carry on, and I heard more of the story. Whereas I think if I had come in of, well, how is your relationship with that person now? Have you had a fallout? Is everything okay? I'd have got that resistance and that kickback because I'm on my agenda. So we have trust and we lose trust and we have trust and we lose trust. And that is a circle of relationship and relationship life. Now, as a parent, we want to have the trust all the time. We want the child to be able to come to us, to be able to tell everything that's going on in our lives because that's what, w what we want. And that's what we believe to be true, and that's how we want lives to be. Because we, like I said before, we want to wrap them up and help them and problem solve. And sometimes that takes over from just being in a space with them and just allowing them to uh, talk to us in, in general about bits and pieces. And, and sometimes we can hear things, and sometimes we can't. And sometimes they might repeat something three or four times, and then it, it's like, well, hang on a sec, why are you saying that to me? What is that? What's going on there? And sometimes they'll even say, yeah, no, I'm okay, I'm fine. And as a negotiator, I've learned that when people say to you, yeah, I'm okay and I'm fine, that that starts to trigger off a, if, if you were fine, it, it doesn't make sense why you're behaving like this. But rather than putting my opinion on, I, I just give facts. And you can do that in a negotiation far easier because you're in the logical brain than you can in an emotional state of conversation. So if I was talking to somebody, I would just say what I saw and I would say, you're telling me you're fine, but we're here, so I'm guessing something's going on. And then I would leave it because uh, I may not have the right to ask the question of what is going on. Because that's a burning question, isn't it? What's going on? What on earth has happened that you feel this way today? Because I don't get it. I don't understand. Um, and so we start asking lots of questions, which is on our agenda rather than the other person's agenda. So the third, so I've covered parent, child, adult, and emotional brains. So that, that's my third point. Um, and I've talked about emotional behavior, but also label the emotion rather than the behavior. So if somebody behaves in a specific way that frustrates you, that makes you angry, that you don't get, that triggers some of those emotions or all of the emotions for you, it could be somebody turning up late. It could be somebody getting drunk when they wouldn't, weren't supposed to. You know, it, it could be an anything. It could be somebody hurting themselves and you not understanding why they've chosen to take that action. 
And what we tend to do is ask the question, why have you done that? Why have you done that? What's made you do that? Because we want to understand, we want to know, and we want to help. But if you label the emotion first, and then let's address the behavior later, what it does is it builds the rapport and the trust far more. Now, even in relationships, we like to feel that we have rapport and trust constantly, but we, but we don't always have it. And if you look at your own relationships with your partner or perhaps with your mum, I remember being a teenage kid and, and not telling my mum anything, mainly because I was not great at being a teenager, but also I found it incredibly confusing and I didn't understand what was going on in my life, let alone to be able to articulate how I felt. So it, it came out in behaviour because I couldn't address the emotions. Now, as we get older and we have more experience in life, we find ways of being able to talk about it, of being able to say what we're feeling and why we're feeling it. Now, not all the time. That doesn't happen all the time. But the more you get experience through life, the more you can see. So if I compare myself to teenager to now, and this is, I get this is just me. I was a very troubled teenager. I didn't get what was going on. I was very angry. I was very frustrated. I loved being at school. I loved the social atmosphere of being at school. I hated being at home. I clashed with my mum. I went and worked away for four weeks when I was 15, and I came back and I knew everything about everything in the whole world of everything. And I, I took that out on my mum, and I certainly didn't explain to her what was going on in my head, and I couldn't rationalise it in my own behaviour because I didn't have the uh, thought process. I didn't have the cognitive skills, the understanding of what was going on. So if somebody had sat down and spoken to me about emotions or just labelled the emotions, I, I would have gone, right, you, you get it. You, you get where I'm coming from. And I've had the privilege of working with um, people in the Prince's Trust and doing a lot of work with younger people. And it works when, when you're there in the present moment and speaking about emotions and just reflecting back what they're displaying to you. So my top tips are say what you see and say what you hear. And by that I mean if someone is displaying specific behaviour, patterns of behaviour, just have an honest and open conversation about what you're seeing without any emotion on it. And But don't be surprised if you get an emotional response and then you have to check your feelings about what's coming and stay in that logical state of mind and say what you hear which is just reflect back what's being said to you because if you reflect back what is being said to you you cannot put any judgment you cannot put any opinion on it because it's that person's words and that person's emotions and then what that allows you to do is it allows the other person to start to open up now some people say to me that's great if they're talking it but what happens if you get no response from somebody and my answer is the same. Say what you see and say what you hear. And if they're not ready to talk to you, it does make it harder because obviously you want you want to help. And I've had conversations with people where by they haven't spoken to me for about six to eight hours in a negotiation because I haven't earned the right to ask some of the questions I was asking. Now, if you're in a relationship with somebody, you probably have earned the right. But there are also all of those emotions involved from that person and from you. And sometimes we worry about the response that we'll get. Um, I remember that all the time. I remember smoking as a kid and promising my mum that I'd given it up. And I remember that I hadn't given it up and I had to go and have a conversation with her. Um, and I was expecting bad consequences, you know, to be kept in, uh, in, in at home, 
having a curfew, all those sorts of things, all those things that I built up in my mind about what was going to happen. Uh, and so I built this conversation up into a big thing. And actually, when when that happened, my mum was um, totally fine about it. And she didn't want me to smoke, obviously. But she didn't give me a hard time. She just acknowledged that I had taken responsibility for it and that I'd spoken to her. And I was surprised in myself that that had happened, that she'd done that. And and that that helped. That was when we were going for a good phase. <laughs> Before I became a horrible child, or a confused child, I should say, a confused child with, you know, when when you're going through through teenage years, you're very different from how you are when you're naught to seven, and then seven to twelve, and then you change again in your twenties, you change again in your thirties, you change again in your forties. I'm now in my fifties, and I find life a lot easier because I'm comfortable with me. I wasn't comfortable with me in my teens. I wasn't comfortable with me in my 20s. I started to get there in my 30s, more in my 40s, but, um, but it's experience. And, and, and you have those experiences, and it helps you have more cognitive process. So label the emotion and then the behavior. Be fully present. Be fully present in the conversation. And if you feel yourself about to say something, press the pause button before you say it. Press the pause button and don't ask a question. And that's hard because we, we're kind of, our default position is to ask questions, to find out more information. But every time we ask a question, we generally take the conversation onto our agenda. And we're trained, I believe, that, you know, a, a two-way conversation is question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And it is to a degree as you're starting to get to know somebody and starting to you know, build that rapport and a relationship, and you can you can have a have a bit of fun. But if if you want a deeper conversation, a more meaningful conversation, where you build, where you go from that rapport to that trust element, and then the trust to being able to influence somebody, it's far more about listening, and far less about asking questions. And a classic example around this is when you talk about about holidays. And we, our default position is to say, so for example, if I said, um, hey, I've just come back from holiday, our default position would be, oh, where'd you go? You know, I find myself asking that question all the time, especially at this time of year. Hey, where did you go? Uh, did you have a nice time? What was the weather like? What was the hotel like? We're asking all those questions and we're being interested. But what we're doing is we're asking questions about what we want to know or to keep the conversation going. Whereas if we had just reflected back a word in that sentence of holiday, so I said, hey, how, uh, you know, I've just come back from holiday, and the other person said, oh, holiday. It might have been, and I'm not saying it would have been, but it might have been that I then come back with, yeah, I had a re- having a really stressful time at work and I just needed to take some time out. So now I've given you a completely different answer than the one I would have given you had you asked a question, because I'm still on my own agenda. So... Four points. It's not about you. It's not about problem solving, about what we think is best. And that's not a criticism in any way, shape or form. That is just what we do. And is one of our, I think probably a lot of our conversation is unconscious. And so it's harder to suddenly start thinking of having a conversation in a different way. And so... Remember Patari's box as well about how your attitude affects your behavior and your behavior affects uh, um, affects somebody else's attitude, affects somebody else's behavior. Talk about trust, that through listening and labeling emotions, we can build rapport and have better 
trust relationships, trusting relationships. Uh, the parent, adult and child and the emotional and logical brain. And just think about where your brain is and how you react to different people in your lives. And it, it probably is when you're at work, you're far more logical. I'm far more logical most of the time <laughs> than I am when I'm at home. Because at home, home I, I don't know, I, I always wonder about this and ponder about this. You know, we, we often take our emotions out on the people that are closest to us. And I'm not saying that's right and I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just something that is. And I wonder why we do that. Is it because we know they'll stay or we can let our guard down and we don't feel that we're going to be judged because they already like us? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I'm still looking for the answers for that. If anybody has any ideas, please um, get in contact with me. I'd love to know. And be fully present. Uh, I read a book recently about conversations with children and that if you are fully present with, like if you have four kids and you spend 15 minutes a week with one of those kids just doing what they want to do and being in the moment with them, their behavior and their attitude and when you ask them to do something else, changes. And I've tried this out and I've, I've practiced on both my partner and Meg and family and friends and it's true. When you're there, even for a small period of time, and I know this from negotiation. I know this to be true from negotiation. It's not necessarily that we have this amazing set of conversational skills, but what we are able to do, even as new negotiators, is be there in the moment and be fully present without thinking or worrying about anything else, without having a distraction of a phone or a message going off, without any of that, just being there fully present. So here are a couple of books that I'm going to re recommend around reading further about this that have really helped me to understand more about how I work as a person and to uh, uh, and that I've seen works in negotiation. Uh, the first one is The Chimp Paradox. And that talks a lot about the chimp brain and the logical brain, um, which is the same as the emotional, logical brain, parent, adult, child. Then there is The Values Factor by Dr. John Martini, and that talks about a real deep dive into what your values are, what you believe to be true, and how that affects your life. And until really I'd read that book, I knew about values, but I didn't really get it. I didn't recognize. And so I know, i just talk, talk about me, but this isn't about me, but as an example, I know that my highest value now in my life is of being in service, and sometimes that is at the detriment to my family. And I am working on changing that because I would like my family to be higher. Um, and I can feel the change and I have a change in mindset around that as well, around work. I'm getting there. It's a work in progress. As my, as my If you ever speak to the guy that coaches me, Kev, <laughs> he'd be able to tell you. So that's Conversation with Kids is a really good book. If you just stick that into Google Conversation with Kids, it'll bring it up. It's on Amazon. And then the last book is How to Speak So Teenagers Will Listen and listen so teenagers will talk. That's another great book, but they talk about all the same bits that we've covered here is about being present in the moment with somebody, labeling the emotions, not problem solving, not giving your opinion, not judging. And with that, that creates a better rapport and better trust and helps us to have a greater understanding of ourselves, which then helps us to have a greater understanding of other people. You know, when they say in the aeroplane to put your oxygen mask on first and then help other people, 
There is a reason for that. Because until we are able to recognise our own behaviour and work to change what we believe to be true and work to recognise how we are as people, then we can't then help others to change. I hope that makes sense. I, I really hope that has helped. If you have any questions at all or if I can help you further in any way, shape or form, please don't hesitate to contact me on any of my social media platforms. Um, that My phone number is on my website. Um, it generally goes to voicemail because I get so many calls. So please just leave a voicemail and I will get back to you. The best way is via email and uh, I, I check those twice a day. I'm more likely to reply. Thank you for taking the time out. Thank you all so much for your positive comments, for following me on my podcast. And I, um, I, I hope in some small way I'm making a difference to your lives. And when I do this, I still make a difference to my life because I'm continuing to learn. And from you, I continue to grow as well. So thank you so much for being part of the Communication Coach podcast. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Hey everybody, Nikki again. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast and thank you for joining me. You can find me on social media at Nikki Comms Coach at Twitter and The Communication Coach on Facebook and thecommunicationcoach.co.uk. Please like, share and review and I look forward to speaking to you soon.